If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's interview is with Philippe Sands, a lawyer, author and broadcaster, whose 2016 book, East West Street, won huge acclaim and numerous awards. In 2018, he presented the BBC podcast series, Intrigue, The Rat Line, 
which explored the life of the senior Nazi Otto Vector and his attempts to escape from justice. That story is now covered in greater depth in Philippe's new book, also entitled The Rat Line, which has just been published. He spoke to our editor, Rob Attar, about Otto's remarkable story and his own attempts to piece it all together. So uh, first of all, Philippe, I wonder if we could go back a few years and if you could tell us about how you first became acquainted with the story of Otto Werther. Well, it starts really with my grandfather, uh, who was a man I was very close to. He lived until 1997. I knew him well, but he never talked to me about what happened to him during or before the war. And in 2010, I receive an invitation from the university in the Ukrainian city of Lviv to give a lecture on the work that I do in international courts and tribunals on crimes against humanity and genocide, uh, modern cases. And I accept it because it turns out my grandfather was born in the city of Lviv, which used to be known as Lemberg in German language and Lvov in Polish language. I went there, I gave the lecture. I made certain discoveries about the origins of the concepts of crimes against humanity and genocide coming from that city. And that led me, one thing always leads to another, to a man called Hans Frank, who was Hitler's man in occupied Poland, his personal lawyer, governor general of occupied Poland, who becomes the fourth man in the story of a previous book that I wrote, East West Street. I tracked down Hans Frank's son, Nicholas, who'd written a book which shows his disdain for his father and the criminality of his father. I spent time with Nicholas. And at one point, Nicholas said to me, since you're interested in Lemberg, Lviv, would you like to meet the son of the governor of Lemberg, Lviv, Otto Wechter? His name is Horst Wechter. And Nicholas says to me, he's different from me. I hate my father. He loves his father, but you'll like him. Would you like to meet him? So I say, this is about 2011. I say, yeah, I'd I'd love to meet him. I'm not sure why he'd want to meet me, but let's give it a go. Anyway, one thing leads to another. We meet up early in the spring of 2012, and he's a lovely man and a very open man. And it's true, he holds his father in great esteem. His father was Hans Frank's deputy. He was governor of Krakow, then governor of District Galicia, involved in the murder, mass murder of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Uh, And he escapes on the 9th of May, 1945. He disappears off the face of the earth when the war comes to an end, unlike Hans Frank, who is caught by the Americans and tried in the famous Nuremberg trial. So it's two very different stories. And over time, Horst Wächter, the son of Otto, and I get to know each other better and better. I'm aware that Horst has a great deal of material. For three or four years, I don't see much of that material. Horst alludes to it. He shows me a few photographs. He shows me one diary entry. He shows me the occasional letter. And then we made a BBC film together, a documentary called My Nazi Legacy, which is my relationship with Nicholas uh, Frank and Horst Wächter. And at some point in the film, Nicholas describes Horst as a new Nazi because he's condoning the actions of his father. In fact, Nicholas later retracts that allegation, and I make very clear in the film I don't think Horst is a Nazi. Horst sees the film and he gets very upset that he's described as a Nazi. And he says to me, what can I do? And I say, well, you've got all this material, most of which I've not seen, your mum's letters and diaries, your dad's letters and diaries, 20 years of material, thousands of pages. Why don't you give it to a museum? And then researchers and scholars and other people can review the material and form a view on it. 
And he says, that's a terrific idea. One thing again leads to another. He sends it to Washington, to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. It's about 10,000 pages. And he sends me a single USB stick with all of this material on it. It sort of lingers for a bit. Uh, I then have, coincidentally, dinner with a wonderful historian, a colleague of mine at University College London, uh, Professor Lisa Jardine, uh, who's just given her inaugural lecture on research in the archives, focusing on personal documents. And she says, well, why don't we start a research project? And so we begin a research project to analyse all of the letters and all of the diaries. And that's how the story of the rat line begins. So one of the interesting themes that comes across throughout the book, as you've alluded to now, is the fact that Horst doesn't see his father as such a bad person in the way that Hans Frank's son does. But but you're very clear that Horst, you know, is not a Nazi, does not agree with Nazism. So why do you feel that he's unable to view his father in a negative way? So Horst's position about his father, if I can summarise, is sort of as follows. He says that he hardly knew his father, but I've surmised that his positive feelings towards his father are really about his positive feelings towards his mother. His mother, whose reminiscences describe Otto Wechter as the great love of her life, her name is Charlotte, and she was very close to her son Horst, and he was very close to her, and it is to him that she entrusts all of these archival materials. So I've come to understand that Horst's positive feelings towards his father are really positive feelings towards uh, his mother. He accepts the story of the Holocaust. He knows that the Nazis were responsible for killing millions of people, Jews and Poles and gypsies and others. And he accepts that his father was involved in some of the actions. What he disputes is that his father was a criminal. His version of history is that my father was caught up in these things against his will. He didn't support them. He did what he could to do the right thing. And so part of the exercise of the rat line is to uncover exactly what his father did. Um, So the relationship that he has with his father, I think, is a complex one. Um, I've always rather had the sense that deep down he recognises the position that I have come to, which is that his father, who was indicted for mass murder, was a criminal, that if he had been caught, he would have been put on trial, he would have been convicted of crimes against humanity and genocide, and like most of his mates, he would have been sentenced to death. But Horst cannot bring himself to accept that version of the facts, and the more I push him, the more he digs himself into the hole he has dug for himself about his father's essential decency. One of the things that was very important for me in writing the route line was to ensure that Horst's version of history was fairly put forward. In other words, that he be given the space to give his own interpretation, and I leave it to the reader to form their own view of what his father did and did not do. So one argument that comes out from Horst quite a lot is that his father was not directly involved in any killings. He he didn't stand there with a gun and he wasn't there in the gas chambers. Do you think it's possible to make that differentiation between people who are part of the general apparatus from those who actually killed people? Well, I, I'm a professor of international law. I work on cases of mass killing. And as a legal concept, 
it makes no difference. If you are the commander who signs a piece of paper ordering, instructing others to engage in an act of mass murder, the principle of command responsibility, which is now well established, imposes upon you an individual criminal responsibility for your acts. But I can quite understand that for a family member, you draw a distinction between the person, if you like, who takes the gun and shoots the person, and you take refuge in that difference. So at a personal level, I understand that, but it would not withstand scrutiny uh, in a court of law. But in point of fact, I'm a courtroom litigator, I like finding material in documents. You will recall that in the book, there is an early story that takes place in December 1939, when two German officers are uh, assassinated in a small Polish town called Bocznia. And uh, Otto Wechter uh, writes a letter to his wife, Charlotte, in which he says, tomorrow I have to have 50 Poles shot. Now, it turns out that the act of shooting 50 Poles, in fact, it was 55 Poles, was the first act of German reprisal killing in the war, in the occupation of Poland. It is a notorious act. It is still marked today, 80 years later, in Poland. And there is a monument to that act of killing. As I was doing the research, I read somewhere that a photographer had been instructed to uh, take photographs of that act of reprisal killing. And I said to myself, hmm, I wonder if I can find those photos if I will see Otto Wechter present supervising the acts of killing. It took four years to find the photograph album. Four copies of the album were made, one for Hitler, one for Goering, and one for each of the widows of the two German officers killed. And one of the four photo albums resides, it turns out, in an obscure Polish archive in Warsaw, and I found it. And it was a bit of a shock, I have to say, to see these dreadful photographs, a series of photographs before the actual moment of killing and after. And in the photographs, you can see Otto Wechter. And when I finally showed those photographs to various members of the Wechter family, as you can imagine, they produced a very strong and painful reaction. They are terrible photographs. I decided in the end to put them in the book with very little commentary to leave it to the reader to form her or his own view on them. But the fact is, it is established in black and white that if Otto Wechter didn't actually pull the trigger, he was present, he supervised, he commanded, he ordered, he was directly responsible. That is a war crime. It is a crime against humanity. And that alone... Uh, I think that single act of killing very early in the war would have been sufficient to do him in. Um, You've studied a lot of his correspondence. In any of Otto's letters, did he express any regret at all or or conversely an acknowledgement of some of the crimes that he was involved in? So it takes a long time to go through, I think it's 8,670 pages of private letters and diary entries. I worked with the assistance of some remarkable individuals. James Everest, who was finishing his PhD, he was 
late Lisa Jardine's last PhD student, my own research assistant at, at, uh, at university, uh, Leah Meinklingst, who's German. Um, and we, I mean, they, we and others spent literally thousands of hours going through these documents. We've read every single document. Most of them have been translated into English and they've all been digitised. In 8,700 pages of original documents, supplemented by about another 1,500 pages of materials we've come up with, there is not a single hint of regret as to any act of killing in which Otto Wechter was involved. But it gets even more interesting. Amongst the materials that Horst gave me were 14 cassette tapes uh, that his mother Charlotte recorded long after the war. In the 1970s, she decided she wanted to go and track down her husband's old colleagues, her, his old comrades, people who knew him, to recreate for her children this wonderful man that she had loved. And she tracks them down. Remarkably, she records many of the conversations. And so I have those conversations. And you listen to those conversations, and some of them are really rather troubling. So there's one that she engages in in, in the spring of 1977. She's in the Four Seasons Hotel in Munich, a famous hotel. She's meeting with a journalist from the Nazi period, deeply anti-Semitic, deeply racist, called Melita Wiedemann, who was very close to Hitler and Himmler. And they're reminiscing about the good old days. You hear the sound of glasses being clinked, toasts being given, reminiscences about the good old days. And at one point, Charlotte says to Melita Wiedemann, you know, I really was a true believer. Hitler was our saviour. And Melita Wiedemann says, yes, I was a Nazi too. Actually, I still am. And you just get this amazing sense of looking back on the good old days, that that was the highlight of her life. There's another reminiscence that Charlotte gives that I find very touching because it's personal to me. My mother was born in Vienna in July 1938. Three months earlier, the Germans had occupied the country and the city. And of course, famously, in the middle of March 1938, Hitler arrives uh, in Vienna and he stands on the Heldenplatz uh, on the balcony of the Hofburg Palace, and he gives a great speech to, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people. And I hadn't appreciated that Otto and Charlotte Wechter were there, and they were, in fact, on Charlotte's account, which she rewrites 40 years later, standing with Hitler. As she puts it in her reminiscence, I was within one metre of the Fuhrer as he stood on the balcony. And she describes it, and she's writing now in the 70s and the 80s, as the single greatest day of her life. And it's an account written with passion, with energy, uh, with a tremendous emotion. She's a good writer. You can feel yourself being there, and you can feel that moment being recreated. And coming back to your question, it's absolutely clear there is not a hint of regret at any point in that individual account 
or in the totality of the material. Those were the good old days. And clearly you've got a personal connection to this story, as, as people who've read East West Street will, will know. A lot of your certainly extended family lost their lives in the Holocaust in the regions where Vector operated. So how difficult did you find it on a personal level to have Horst denying his father's culpability? Well, I think, um, like probably a professional historian, I am somewhat protected by the work that I do. I'm a professional international lawyer. I spend time in courts. I see, hear, watch, listen to, observe terrible things. And you learn, in a sense, to keep a certain distance, a certain equanimity. Um, You listen, you try not to allow your own emotions to interfere. And for the most part, over a 10-year relationship with Horst, I have been able to keep my distance and we get on well, we engage well. He is not responsible for the sins of his father. He knows that's my view and he's understood that early on. So I don't blame him in any way for the terrible things that were done. But there are moments in our encounters where it becomes very difficult for me. In 2014, we travelled together to Ukraine. We went to Lviv and we went to the small town where my great-grandmother was born, a town called Zhulkiev, and where her brothers and her nephews and nieces and cousins were all killed on a single day, in effect under the control and authority of Otto Wechter, hundreds of people. And I found that day very difficult. And in the course of that visit to Ukraine, there is a single moment where I lose my rag with Horst. I don't like that. That I don't like the fact that I got upset with him. I had found, I'd been looking for three years for an act of criminal indictment. He would always say to me, you've got no proof that my father was involved in any acts of killing. So I spent a lot of time looking in the Polish archives for uh, an indictment, a criminal indictment of his father. And eventually I found it, again in a Warsaw archive, Otto Wächter indicted for mass murder more than 100,000 Poles, who are, of course, mostly Jews. And that act of indictment includes many members of my grandfather's own family. And I show the document to Horst, and he looks at it very carefully, and he says, of course, of course. And he's pausing and working out, and then he says, it's a Soviet document. This isn't a real indictment, and I get very irritated with him. It so happens that at that very moment, and they're making a film and the cameras are recording that moment, so that moment is recorded and it does indeed appear in a film, a BBC Storyville film called My Nazi Legacy, made by my dear friend David Evans. And David knew that I did not like that moment of me losing my rag But it's his film. I said, it's your film. You decide what you're going to put in. If you want to put that scene in, you put it in. So in general, I managed to restrain myself. Uh, It's a very civil, close relationship. We keep our cool. There are a few occasions where he weeps. There are a few occasions where I lose my rag. But for the most part, it's quiet. It's calm. We talk about the facts. We disagree on their interpretation but it's a very courteous relationship. And as you alluded to earlier, Charlotta is such a big part of this story. What do you think her letters and her character tell us or can tell us about 
the life of a senior Nazi that we don't necessarily know about some of the other people at that time? Well, I have to say, for me, Charlotte is the beating heart of this book. I think it's the first time we've had access to the entirety, more or less, of a personal archive that traces the life of a whole relationship. Charlotte meets Otto in the spring of 1929. She's 20 years old. She falls in love with him the day she meets him. And they spend 20 years together until he dies in a Vatican hospital in Rome in the summer of 1949. And through her diaries and her reminiscences and their letters, thousands of pages, you can trace an entire relationship. Courtship, falling in love, sex for the first time, pregnancy, marriage, his job, his political office, Krakow, Ukraine, Lemberg, Italy, and then, of course, May 1945, the war comes to an end in Europe and Otto Vechter disappears off the face of the earth. And we have the letters and diaries which help us piece together what happened in the four and a half years afterwards. So one way of looking at this is as an incredible love story. Um, It's plain that it's a complex relationship He has a lot of affairs. She loses her heart on a couple of occasions to other men. All of that is in the material. And you can trace the totality of a relationship, warts and all, over 20 years. And that sheds light, I think, in particular, on one of the great questions. How could men like Otto Wächter educated, intelligent, a lawyer, cultured, do what he did? And the answer to that question, in part, lies in the enabling role of the partner, the spouse, the wife. It becomes absolutely clear that she knew everything. Not only did she know everything, she supported everything. And even more to the point, when he came to crossroads, When he asked her in March 1938, when the Nazis had taken over Austria and he was offered a senior job in the new Nazi government, shall I carry on with my job as a lawyer and make plenty of money or shall I enter public service and we will be far less well off? She says, take the job in government. And you understand from that moment, she too is deeply implicated in what follows. So it's a complex story. Uh, On the other hand, you're also able to trace the mundanities of life. And so you can piece together that while Otto Wächter is doing his day job in Krakow, creating ghettos in Lemberg, overseeing or contributing to acts of mass killing, what's Charlotte doing? She's going to the opera. She's feeding the children her meals. She's going to the Salzburg Festival. She's going up on mountaintop picnics, bathing with the children, writing letters to her husband on the day that acts of mass killing had taken place, describing the beauty of nature, the beauty of their family life together. It's, it's chilling uh, in many ways, but only in this way, 
when you get involved in the personal side of a relationship, can I, I think, come to the point where you can begin to understand how a normal home life was created, which enabled terrible acts of mass killing to take place. And so the personal becomes absolutely crucial in understanding the political. And that really is the thesis of Lisa Jardine, to really understand how these big political decisions and acts are taken, you've got to descend into the micro of family life, which enables those things to take place. And here we have a more or less complete record. And, and as you say, they, they seem like a very loving couple. They're very cultured people. Do you get any sense of how they can square that uh, with either participating in or supporting the killing of millions of people? Well, I mean, they're loving up to a point. Um, it's very clear from the material that Otto, who is a devilishly good-looking guy, um, is uh, busy having affairs all over the place. And Charlotte discovers many of these affairs, and she gets her own back on him in ways that are equally devilish. You'll recall in 1936, he has fled to Berlin because he's been involved in the killing of the Austrian Chancellor, the assassination of Dolphus, a famous uh, international act, she eventually turns up in Berlin to discover that he is having an affair with a young German lady called Trauter. A few months later, she falls pregnant. They have a child, a daughter, and she says to him, you know what? I'm going to call her Trauter in honour of you and your affair. So that, you know, loving relationship, yes, up to a point, but there is also a tension and there is a sort of acts of retribution uh, on uh, both sides. Why did they do what they did? I mean, they're both deeply anti-Semitic. That comes up in the documents. They are also deeply racist. You get that uh, in the documents. Uh, and they completely buy into the Nazi ideology. They are of the view that Jews and Polish intellectuals and political opponents and homosexuals are a form of bacteria that have to be killed off. It's unpleasant. It's sometimes not very attractive work to be done, but it's necessary for the greater good. And that too emerges in the documents. There is a chilling exchange between Otto and his father, Joseph, who was a senior military officer in the Austrian Empire's army in the First World War. His father writes to him and says, look, one of my good mates uh, has married a Jewish woman. They have a child and that child is treated as a Jew and has been caught up in the race laws. Could you please intervene and see if you can do something to get her out of her terrible situation. And uh, Otto investigates and then writes back to his father, and we have the letter, and says, look, Papa, I'm really sorry, but the law is the law. Uh, this is uh, what has to be done for the greater good. There's nothing I can do. He's an absolute true believer, and Charlotte is a true believer. You know, I when I first met uh, Horst, he was living here with his wife, Jacqueline, who's actually Swedish. She passed away uh, a few years ago. But before she passed away, at one point while I was there, she whispered in my ear, you know, Charlotte was a Nazi until the day she died. 
And I think that's the only way you can understand Charlotte and Otto. They were absolutely true believers, 100%. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. How did people who were highly intelligent, highly educated, highly cultured, get involved in mass murder? That's the question that has to be asked. And it's only by looking at things in the round and looking at the family side of life, the mundanities of daily life, do you really get to understand what happened? And can you begin to give answers to that most difficult question? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, the second part of the book looks at Otto's adventures after the war and how he eventually ends up in Italy <clears throat> and potentially trying to get on this rat line out of out of Europe. One thing that I thought was really interesting is how does someone like Otto manage to survive four years when so many people are hunting him without being captured? Well, th- this for me was the great revelation. I meet Horst in early 2012. All I know at that point is that his father died in unexplained circumstances in 1949. Horse doesn't talk about it. We never address it. I, you know, the dad's not around anymore. What I learn as I'm going through the material and as I'm doing the research is that Otto Wechter is indicted for mass murder, actually as early as 1942, uh, as a leading uh, Nazi. In May 1945, the war ends and he disappears off the face of the earth. But there's no account of what actually happens to him. And it's only in Charlotte's materials, these extraordinary archives, 
that you're able to piece together what happens. And it is an incredible story in many ways. For the first three years, he hides in the mountains, actually not very far from Charlotte. And we learn from her diaries and their letters and the materials that are now available publicly, how he gets together with a young Waffen-SS soldier called uh, Burkhard Ratmann, known as Buko. And for three years, uh, they hide in a place that Buko has found for them, which is above 2,000 metres. In other words, very high in the Austrian mountains, in the snowiest parts, in the glaciers, they hide for three years. Why there? Because Buko tells Wächter, the British and the Americans who are hunting for you are too stupid and too lazy to go and find us up here. And they survive up there for three and a half years. And remarkably, Buko, at this point, in mid-2015, 2016, is still alive. And so I get to meet Buko, and that was one of the more surreal sets of meetings that I had. And Buko tells me firsthand how they survived, how they hid, all of their adventures, and that is recounted in the book. That then comes to an end, and Otto Wächter decides, as an indicted man, he's got to get out of Europe. And he hears about something called the Reich Migratory Route, which we know today as the Rat Line, the path from Italy to South America and freedom. And he decides that he wants to join it. He invites Charlotte. She says, no, I'm staying in Austria with the children. They have six children. And he decides, with her help, and this is all recorded, to make his way to Italy and to Rome, where he encounters a whole group of allies, shall we say. Um, not much had been known about this before this material came out, uh, and plots his escape to Argentina, which is where he wants to go. He takes on a false identity, Alfredo Reinhardt, and through the diaries, his diaries, which we have for that year, and Charlotte's diaries and letters, we're able to reconstruct with absolute precision, who it was who helped him. And of course, it is an extraordinary and unexpected alliance that is created. Rather blew me away when I came to the realisation that the Vatican was working with, or, or elements of the Vatican, I need to be very careful, we need to be precise here, was working with former Nazis, senior Nazis, and with Italian fascists, on providing an escape route. And into that mix, of course, comes the question of the Americans. And I don't want to give too much away because this came completely out of the blue for me, but it's the role of the Americans in Italy in 1949 that becomes, for me, um, the most extraordinary part of this story. And, of course, this comes home to me in a curious way by... Uh, Good fortune, one of my neighbours is the writer John le Carre. And I stumbled in this research into a world of espionage, which is not something I know anything about. So I thought to myself, well, I'll go and see David Cornwall, a.k.a. John le Carre, and he can explain to me what on earth is going on here, because it's beyond my comprehension how some of these things I'm stumbling across could possibly have happened. So I... You know, drop him a note. He says, sure, come over, send me a few documents. I'll do some preparation, bring some cakes. 
I go over, we spend several hours together. He's prepared very well. And he almost you know, knocks me off my seat when his opening words are actually, Philippe, I was there in 1949. I was a young British soldier. I was involved in interrogating Nazis. And my job, he says, in part, was to recruit those we could uh, bring to our cause, the the anti-communists uh, who would help us in our struggle against the Soviets. And he was able to give me a remarkable account uh, of how it worked and to confirm my own findings through the diaries and letters uh, of the Wächters. So we go from a story of mass murder into the Cold War and a story of espionage. And that was, frankly, completely unexpected. And it's because of the Cold War at this stage that the British and Americans have changed their focus, really, on rather than hunting these former Nazis to actually using them often against the Soviets. Well, you know, John le Carre says to me, he said it was very confusing. I was 18 years old. This is him speaking. I've been taught for my entire adult life that the Nazis are criminals and they're the worst enemy in the world. And all of a sudden, as he puts it, I'm asked to turn on a sixpence and start working with these characters. It was very, very confusing. What had happened, of course, was that the Iron Curtain had come down. Churchill gives his famous speech in 1946 in the midst of the Nuremberg trial. And all of a sudden, the Soviet allies become the Soviet enemies and a new struggle opens up. And Italy is a central part of that struggle because the Soviets, it is said, have their eye on control of Italy and are working with Italian communists to gain control. There is a famous and important Italian election in 1948, which pits the communists against the Christian Democrats. And that becomes a struggle between East and West. And it is into that struggle that Otto Wächter unwittingly falls. And he gets caught up in the Cold War and the struggle between the West and the Soviets. And that came to me out of the blue. And it's confusing because at that point, you no longer know whether former enemies continue to be enemies or allies. And one of the things we have access to through his letters, which I think are very remarkable, he he writes letters every two or three days to Charlotte, not just a line or two, but long, detailed narratives of life in Rome trying to avoid being caught by the Americans or others who are chasing him, the Jews, the Poles, the British, the Soviets, and his daily life. But of course, they are incredibly worried about censors, including where the letters are received in Salzburg by Charlotte Wächter. And so they write in a form of code. Names are truncated. You get letters, you know, the general the kindly religious gentleman, um, G, Y, H, G1, G2, G3. And that's why it took four years for James Everest and I and Leomine Klinkst, working under the direction uh, of Lisa Jardine, to decode what had actually happened until we stumbled across the biggest story of all, which I don't want to give away in this uh, wonderful conversation, the circumstances of Otto Wächter's death, how he goes one weekend to visit an old comrade. Circumstances conspire that mean that 10 days later, 
he is a dead man in a remarkable Vatican hospital in Rome called the Santo Spiritu. Um, I didn't know any of this when I first met Horst in 2012. I unraveled the story with increasing incredulity. But I think what at the end of the day is so touching about it is you're getting the material and the story not from big political and historical documents, but from personal letters and diaries. And that makes it a very touching story. And in certain ways, I suppose, a very painful story. And to have gone through that process with Horst, who is uncovering, as I am uncovering, what's going on. He didn't know what had happened. It's only as I'm uncovering it that he learns what happened to his father. And of course, he is the son, and that touches him very directly and very acutely and rather painfully, I suspect, uh, he learns what his father and mother were up to. That's that's the story, in a sense, that emerges surprisingly in the second half of the book. One of the big themes of, of um, Otto's time in Rome is the involvement of elements within the church, as you mentioned. Why do you think that people within the Vatican and other church figures were prepared to help people who were mass murderers and were actually being chased by various world powers. What, what's in it for them? Well, I think the, the, the story of the Vatican's role in the rise of Nazism and fascism and during the Second World War is a complex and nuanced story. I, I don't believe it is black and white in one direction or the other. In fact, as you will know, it is only uh, in the last few weeks that the Pope has decided to open the archive of Pope Pius XII, uh, who was the Pope throughout the Second World War and right up until the 1950s. And as that archive delivers up uh, its contents, we will get to know more about who did what when, who knew what when, what alliances were made. The bottom line is that the Vatican was deeply concerned about the Soviet threat. And in that context, the emergence of the Nazis as virulent anti-communists provided an opportunity for an alliance for the Vatican. On the other hand, the Nazis were doing things that the Vatican didn't like. They were killing very large numbers of people including large numbers of Jews. And whatever the antipathy that may have existed between elements of the Christian church and the Jewish community, mass murder was not something the Vatican, I think, could or did support. And indeed, we know that the Pope did, to a certain extent, intervene to prevent the expulsion of large numbers of Italian Jews from Italy to Auschwitz. I mean, a a very large number of Jews were deported and were killed. But the Pope did something, did intervene to stop that from happening. Now, what I've uncovered in the papers and the diaries of Otto and Charlotte Wächter is who helped Otto Wächter. And it is clear that he was helped by a senior Vatican bishop, an Austrian called Alois Hudal. Hudal was deeply involved in the escape of other notorious Nazis, He helped Mengele escape. He helped um, uh, Klaus Barbie escape. His colleagues were involved in the escape of Adolf Eichmann. They were deeply involved in the rat line. 
question, of course, and I don't want to give away here too much, is what was the relationship of these Vatican bishops, or Bishop Udall in particular, with the Americans? Did the Americans know what was going on? Were the Americans in some way complicit with what was going on? Was Hudal working with the Americans? These are questions that are only beginning to be explored, and they are questions that don't admit of easy answers, and they are debated and they are contested. And over the next months and years, we will get to know more about who helped Hudal, and in particular, the central question, were Bishop Alois Hudal's activities in helping Nazis to escape to Argentina and other parts of South America, supported directly or indirectly by Pope Pius XII? That's the $64 million question. I know you don't want to necessarily give away exactly how uh, Otto uh, died in the end, but what kind of steps did you take to try and ascertain how somebody lost their life when this happened 70 years ago? Well, what I feel I'm able to say is this. We know that Otto Wächter went to visit an old comrade whose identity is not revealed, but who we are able eventually to discover. Following that visit, he falls very ill. And there are various theories about what happened. Did he just pick up an illness or was he poisoned? And Horst has one view, other people have another view. Because we have the letters of Otto Wächter, and he writes home to Charlotte about his symptoms, I was able to take those letters to medical experts to try to work out what happened. And one of the people I turned to was one of my own colleagues at University College London, an expert in uh, immunology, Professor Massimo Pinzani, who works at the Royal Free Hospital, which is a UCL institution. And he helped me uh, uncover and get to the true story of what befell Otto Wächter. And it was a fascinating piece of detective work. He would describe the symptoms and from the symptoms, through a process of elimination, work out what had and had not happened. And of course, what was fascinating for me was that in this way, I learned all about how viruses work. The book opens uh, with Otto Wächter in a hospital bed. I can just read, if you like, the opening lines of the book. Sure. Rome, 13th of July, 1949. The condition of the man in bed nine was grave. An intense fever and acute liver condition meant he was unable to eat or focus on the matters of ambition and desire that propelled him throughout his life. The clue there is that he had an intense fever. And Massimo Pinzani, professor at the Royal Free, explained to me, taught me all about fevers and how taking a fever and examining the nature of that fever, its intensity, the time that it lasts, you can begin to work out what happened. And of course, that becomes very relevant for our days because one of the symptoms of coronavirus is a fever. And it turns out that Massimo Pinzani knows a thing or two about coronavirus. So I, you know, I met Massimo Pinzani four years ago. We became good friends. He's a wonderful Italian. 
He's got a great sense of humour. He's a fantastic storyteller. And he got very interested in the story of the rat line, in part because it takes place in Italy, his country. So we got to know each other very well. So when coronavirus sprung up a few weeks ago, of course, I started asking him questions in relation to symptoms and in relation to viruses and in relation to fevers. And I had to start asking him questions, what isolation measures should I be taking, my family members be taking? He's a fantastic guy. He's a fantastic scientist. He's a senior professor. And he cracked the code about what happened. And he became a mate. And he's now my advisor on coronavirus. Now, some people listening to this interview may well have heard the podcast series, the BBC podcast series that you did, I think about a year and a half ago, uh, The Rat Line. So for people who've already heard the series, what else can they expect to discover in the book that they may not already have heard? Well, I, I think there are two things. Firstly, the podcast, obviously, it was very limited in time, so it just scratches the surface. So, for example, we just didn't have time in the podcast to deal with Charlotte Vechter, who is a central character. We didn't have time to deal with all the correspondence, the love story, what happened in the 30s. We didn't deal at all with the details uh, of what Otto Vechter got up to uh, during the war. And, of course, there wasn't time to get into the details of the escape uh, afterwards. So although the podcast deals with the elements of the story, you've got here a great more detail. But I deliberately decided to deal with the podcast and to broadcast the podcast before the book came out. Why? Because I had a suspicion that out there in the great public would be listeners who would get in touch, who would respond to what was described in the podcast and give me new details and possibly even new elements. And that's exactly what happened. People who had stayed and been students at Charlotte Wächter's language school in Salzburg, started getting in touch. And then other family members from the Wächter family started getting in touch. And that meant, of course, that the book takes a completely different direction from the podcast, because I now have the next generation getting involved, namely the grandchildren, uh, of Charlotte and Otto Wächter, and that takes the book into a completely different direction. So some of the ground covered is similar and will be familiar, but the degree of detail is of a different scale, and then the course of the book departs completely. Uh, and in particular, what had not happened in the podcast is that I'd not gained access to the Vatican. And the podcast caused, I mean, this is actually quite a funny story. Maybe I'll just sh share it with you because it's not fully recounted in the book. Um, I wanted to see the room in which Otto Wächter died. Why? Because as my work as a, as a barrister and a lawyer, I've learned that nothing beats going, if you like, to the scene of the crime, to the place where things happened. You pick up the atmosphere, you pick up tiny points of details, you see things. It enables you to get a fuller picture. But I couldn't get access to the Santo Spiritu Hospital. And at the time we made the podcast, I failed to gain access to it. About a year after the podcast came out, a friend of mine, the wonderful Spanish writer Javier Cercas, uh, whose quotation opens the book, was invited by the Pope to give a lecture in the Vatican. 
on his work as a writer and on the subject of literature and faith. And he told me about this. And I said, oh, well, if you happen to meet anyone, I'm trying to get access to the Santo Spiritu Hospital to see the place where Otto Vechter died. If you see anyone who can help me, think of me and maybe put a word in. He goes and gives his lecture. I happen to be in Italy. I'm actually retracing the steps of Otto Vechter as he crosses the Dolomites and escapes. I'm with my 19-year-old daughter walking across the Dolomites. My phone starts going crazy and it's text messages from Javier Cercas. He says, you've got to come to the Vatican. You've got to come to the Vatican. I've just had a, call me, call me. I call him. He says, it's amazing. After I gave my lecture, I was standing around with the cardinal who's responsible for culture in the Vatican and his number two, a wonderful Irish bishop. The Irish bishop, here's your name. And he says, Philippe Sands. Did you just mention Philippe Sands? And uh, Javier says, yes. The Irish bishop says, is he the guy who made that podcast, The Rat Line? Javier said, yes. Have you heard it? The bishop says, oh, yes, I've heard it. Not very complimentary about the Vatican, but I loved it. And that bishop, who I've come to know very well and has been very generous, has given me access to those parts of the Vatican, including the secret archives, including Hudal's grave, and with tremendous help from the Spanish embassy in Rome, access to the Santo Spiritu. So the podcast worked its magic in ways for which I'm intensely grateful. Having spent all these years researching Otto Vechter, what do you think is the importance of getting to humanise or understand these kind of people from the Nazi era? These people from the Nazi era are often portrayed one-dimensionally as monsters. They're not. Otto Vechter did monstrous things, monstrous things that were, in my view, criminal. Although he was never caught, never tried, never convicted. But he wasn't only a man who did monstrous things. He was also a husband, a father, a lover, someone who loved culture, went to operas, went to concerts, read books, wrote, a family man, an everyday human being. And I think that in order to understand what motivates the monstrous acts, you need to see the whole picture. And that means understanding who he was, what he did in his daily life, who his life partner was, how he engaged with her, how she engaged with him, how she describes him, how she loved him, how at times she hated him, and the children. All of this provides a composite picture which helps us better understand what is the central question in this entire terrible saga. How did people who were highly intelligent, highly educated, highly cultured, get involved in mass murder? That's the question that has to be asked. And it's only by looking at things in the round and looking at the family side of life, the mundanities of daily life, do you really get to understand what happened? And can you begin to give answers to that most difficult of questions? And is it is it the end of the road for you and Horst, or will there be any more projects there? 
No, I think Horst and I were bonded forever. But no, um, and I mean, you know, this I can, I can, I can. I, why don't we just say this on the record and just as you know, if we're still recording it, because um, the Rat Line is the second book that deals with this. It follows on; it's a sequel of sorts from East West Street. But of course, the story doesn't end there, and I have now started on what will be the third book. Uh, you will have picked up that one of the characters who emerges, he's very much a bit-part player, is the man whose monk's cell at the Vigna Pia Monastery in Rome, Otto Wächter, occupies. This was a man called Walter Rauf, who was an old comrade of Otto Wächter's, also an SS intelligence officer. He leaves Rome in April 1949 and makes his way to Syria. And from Syria, where he spends a year, he then goes to South America, first Bolivia, then Argentina, and then in 1955, he ends up in Chile. He becomes a businessman, and in September 1973, he becomes an advisor to the new government of Senator Augusto Pinochet, and he becomes an interrogator. And so the next book follows the rat line into the saga of Pinochet and the proceedings before the English courts in which I was involved in the autumn of 1998. You literally couldn't invent it. It is a straight line from Lemberg in 1904, through Vienna, through Krakow, through Lemberg, into Rome, to Santiago, Chile, and then back to London and the House of Lords and the hearings after Senator Pinochet was arrested. It's marvellous. Life is marvellous. That was Philippe Sands. The rat line, Love, Lies and Justice on the Trail of a Nazi Fugitive, is out now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson, in hardback, digital and audiobook formats. You can also listen to Philippe's BBC podcast series, The Rat Line, on BBC Sounds. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us on Sunday for another episode in our special Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Too Afraid to Ask series. Thank you.